Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we reach the conclusion of Stanley's transition from soldier to civilian and his arrival in Chicago. Stanley will begin his new job at Acme Paper Box Manufacturing, owned by his brother-in-law's family, the Bernsteins, as a production engineer. And although Stanley was now a civilian, he was also a reserve officer in the Army Air Corps. And I wanted to offer an explanation of the context for what the transition included in terms of our hero's ability to avoid being activated for the war in Asia. Five months before Stanley begins his new job, and as he awaits transportation home from Europe after his war, it's August of 1945. And from Washington and the War Department, on 24 August 1945, a memorandum for all officers for the Organized Reserve Corps arrives from the White House, and it begins, To all servicemen, our country, which you have served so well, needs your continued patriotic support in the Organized Reserve Corps. When you leave the service, I am personally interested that, as an enlisted man, you enlist in the reserves, or that, as an officer, you accept a new commission in the Officers' Reserve Corps. In doing so, you will contribute to the future security of our country immeasurably. Signed, Harry Truman, Colonel, Field Artillery Reserve. And on the second page of this memorandum, from the War Department and the Chief of Staff in Washington, dated 23 August 1945, to all members of the Army. To better guarantee the permanence of this peace, I am convinced that it is necessary to build up a strong citizen army. The world must recognize that we are at all times prepared to defend the peace. Furthermore, we owe it to our country and to the comrades who have made the great sacrifice to ensure that never again will Americans be drawn into a war unprepared. Therefore, I earnestly hope that you will give careful consideration to the importance of enrolling in one of the civilian components of the Army when you are relieved from active duty, that there may be a solid foundation of veterans for the necessary regeneration of the citizen forces. Faithfully yours, George Marshall, Chief of Staff. By the time our hero was completing his separation process in October of 1945 at Fort McPherson in Georgia, things had changed. Included in the King's separation paperwork were two memos from the Army Service Forces 4th Service Command. The first, the subject entitled Appointment Under Section 37, National Defense Act as Amended, to First Lieutenant Stanley Lester Silverfield. It begins, 
Item 1. The Secretary of War has directed me to inform you that by direction of the President, you are tendered appointment in the Officers Reserve Corps, Army of the United States, effective this date, in the grade and section shown after A above. Your serial number is shown after B above. This memo was signed by Dill D. Beckman, Major, AGD Commanding. The second memo from the War Department and the Adjutant General's Office in Washington. The subject, Appreciation. To First Lieutenant Stanley Lester Silverfield, 0765-449 AC Reserve. Item 1. It is desired to express to you the appreciation of the War Department for your continued service to the national defense by your acceptance of an appointment as an officer in the Reserve Corps. Your aid and that of the other veteran officers who, like you, are displaying an active interest by remaining in the Reserve will be invaluable in building and maintaining a sound and effective post-war army. You and your comrades, by your counsel, your leadership, and your wholesome influence on public opinion, may well make the difference between mediocrity and complete success. Item 2. AR 140-5 and the other Army regulations governing the Officers' Reserve Corps necessarily will be revised to conform with such statutes as may be enacted to govern the post-war Army. The revised regulations and other information concerning the Officers' Reserve Corps will be made available in the future. Item 3. As soon as the press of work permits, a formal commission evidencing your appointment will be mailed to you. By order of the Secretary of War. Signed, Edward F. Woodsell, Major General, Acting the Adjutant General. Stanley, with this fresh paperwork, begins 1946 as a commissioned officer in the Reserve Corps. What follows Stanley throughout much of the next decade, through the start and the end of the Korean War in 1953, is the paperwork that keeps him home and safe while he remains under the watchful eye of the federal government. Stanley's status as a production engineer for ACME is safeguarded by what's known as the list of essential activities that are issued by the United States Department of Commerce. Stanley's job as a production engineer was essential to the war effort. And in a brief few months in 1952, the Silver King's paperwork reflects how closely the nation was tracking its veterans and its reserve officers in case they were needed for active duty. On January 16, 1952, the United States Department of Commerce under the Secretary Charles Sawyer issued a revised list of essential activities. And it began with a statement. 
Secretary of Commerce Charles Sawyer today issued a revised list of essential activities for use in connection with the revised list of critical occupations released May 7, 1951, by the Department of Labor. No activities were removed from the Commerce list. The principal additions are those activities involving the production of kaolin clay, tetraethyl lead, and adhesives. These lists are prepared for use by the Department of Defense for considering requests for delaying calls to active duty of reservists and the National Guard. They are also made available to local draft boards of the Selective Service System as information to assist them in making determinations on requests for deferment of registrants. These agencies have the responsibility for making determinations on requests for military deferments. In issuing the revised Commerce List of Essential Activities, Secretary Sawyer said, quote, The sole purpose of the list is to serve as a guide in obtaining manpower for the armed forces. It is not designed for use in connection with priorities, material allocations, rationing preference, or other similar purposes, end quote. The present list, like the list issued on April 8, 1951, does not follow any established industrial classification system, but has grouped essential activities under 25 broad headings. Stating that the list has been drawn in rather strict terms, Secretary Sawyer cited the major considerations involved in determining each activity listed. Under the foreseeable mobilization program, the products or services of the activity must meet all of the following criteria. 1. Be essential to the defense program or to the minimum civilian health safety or interest. 2. Be adequate to meet defense and minimum civilian requirements or for which a seriously short supply is indicated. Item 3. The current level of employment in the activity must be maintained or increased. The memo continues. The list was recommended by the Joint Department of Commerce Department of Labor Committee on Essential Activities and Critical Occupations with the approval of an intra-agency advisory group composed of representatives from the Selective Service System and the Departments of Defense, Agriculture, and Interior. The list of essential activities begins with Item 1, the production and maintenance of aircraft and parts. Item 2, the production of ships and boats. Item 3, ordnance. Item 4, agriculture and commercial fishing. Item 5, food processing. The major theme of these essential activities is that the industries produce things important to the national defense and the war effort. And down the list of these activities, at item 19, which is circled on the King's paperwork, is the production of shipping containers described as containers for products identified on this list, glass, metal, plastic, wood, paper, and textile, including reconditioning of and caps and closures for such containers, metal strapping, adhesives. 
as Stanley's civilian status remains essential. The Air Force continues to track his activities, and in July of 1952, he receives a memo from the 10th Air Force Reserve Inventory Unit Number 3 in Chicago. And the subject is Inventory of Air Force Reserve Personnel Resources, addressed to Stanley, First Lieutenant Stanley Lester Silverfield, United States Air Force Reserve, at 534 Aldine Avenue, Chicago 13, Illinois. It begins, This letter requires your immediate attention! Exclamation point. Item 1. The Air Force is conducting an inventory of all its reservists. It must know what it can expect from you and all other reservists during this and any future emergency. Item 2. This request does not mean that you as a reservist are being considered for entry into active military service. Item 3. It does mean that the Air Force wants complete, up-to-the-minute information about your qualifications and availability for active military service in case you are needed at some time in the future. Item 4. To accomplish this inventory, personal interviews are conducted with all reservists residing within Illinois counties of Cook and DuPage and all reservists assigned to the 2400 Air Force Reserve Specialist Training Squadron under the jurisdiction of the 2400 Air Force Reserve Specialist Training Center, regardless of county of residence. These interviews will be held at 226 West Jackson Street, Chicago 6, Illinois, between the hours of 0800 and 1700, Monday through Friday. The telephone number is Andover 33600, extension 101. Item 5. Your appointment has been set for 1,400 hours on 22 October. If it is possible for you to meet this commitment, please so indicate on the attached postal card. Sign your name and mail it. This two-page memo was signed by Walter W. Gross, Colonel in the United States Air Force. Later that month, Stanley received another memo, this one from the headquarters of the 10th Air Force Air Force Survey of Reserve Personnel on the subject of availability of the classification code. It was brief. Item 1. A review of information furnished by you regarding your ability to respond to active military service orders should your service be required has been completed. As a result of the information you furnished, you have been accorded availability classification code AI. Parenthetically, see explanation on reverse side. Item 2. If you feel this classification is incorrect, you may request reconsideration. This request for review and reconsideration should be addressed to the Commanding General, Headquarters, 10th Air Force, Selfridge Air Force Base, Michigan. Item 3. It is emphasized that this availability classification code is subject to revision in the light of overriding military requirements. Signed, E. Roche, Major, United States Air Force. The King's classification as A.I., meant that he 
is a reservist engaged in a critical occupation in an essential activity as listed on Department of Commerce list of essential activities. And under the code I, he's in this protected status for one through three months and, of course, subject to review throughout. Three months later, in September of 1952, Stanley received another memo, which was an outline of officer classification system. And it began, since many officer reservists are not aware of the changes that have been incorporated into the new officer classification program, this outline has been prepared to cover the more important features of the new system. Air Force Manual 36-1, titled Officer's Classification Manual, 1 January of 1952, sets forth policies and procedures governing classification of officers assigned to the United States Air Force, both active and inactive. The new system provides for 26 occupational fields, six of which cover the medical service. In each of the 26 fields, all related positions requiring the same knowledges and skills have been grouped into one Air Force specialty, thereby eliminating the necessity for developing separate descriptions for closely related positions. This dense two-page memo concludes with a brief paragraph. The classification action taken during the inventory is not a final action on your part, since we must be advised whenever a change in status occurs which affects your qualification status. We are depending upon you to advise us whenever a change occurs in order that your records may be maintained in a current status. Your cooperation during the interview will be appreciated. Stanley's steep surveillance by the Air Force Reserve units concluded in November of 1952. His paperwork included a long questionnaire titled Air Force Reserve Inventory Questionnaire. Section 1, which was to be completed by the reservist, asked the king for all the pertinent data about his work where he was, of course, at Acme Paper Box, and what his job description was as a production engineer, which included the procurement of all raw materials, the analyzation of production problems, cost analysis, production planning, estimating and analysis of individual jobs before and after production. He had seven years in this role, and he had two employees in the production unit that he supervised. Deep in the form, there is a question about his availability. Item 19, which is described as in the event of a national emergency, indicate below the minimum period of time subsequent to receipt of orders required by you to report for active military service. Stanley had checked 7 to 12 months with normal notice. Following that, they ask about his special circumstances. Of course, they want to know why he would request more than 30 days. And his box is checked that he and his employer consider his job a key position. 
the duties of which are critically essential to the overall effectiveness of the activity. To conclude Stanley's section, a statement, I certify that the foregoing entries are true and correct to the best of my knowledge and belief. Dated 14 November 1952, Stanley L. Silverfield. As Stanley's 1953 began, the paperwork trail was slowing. It became more apparent that perhaps there would be a finish to the Korean War, or at least a settlement, an armistice, a stalemate perhaps. For the king, that meant perhaps a fresher view of the coming years and an opportunity to really focus on family life and perhaps pursue more of a career life, a different way, with a different organization. As you know from following our hero, Stanley's civilian life in its first year meant that he would meet and marry Shirley June Gordon in June of 1946. And then he had children, Shirley and Stanley, first me in 1948, and then my sister Cindy in 1951. And four years after that, our nuclear family rode a new Plymouth coupe to Northbrook, an up-and-coming suburb north of the city in 1955. And now as we reach the conclusion of Stanley's transition, a brief review of what's ahead. You know that throughout the podcast series, I've mentioned that fans and friends listeners over these years have asked me frequently, well, what really happened to the king? What was his real life like? And true to form, as in every life, it was complicated. Stanley had come home from the war, 22, and an Air Corps veteran. He got married, and then for much of the first decade after his return, he worked as a production engineer for Acme Paper Box, and that job protected him from being called to active duty during the Korean War. When the war ends in July of 53, Stanley feels obvious relief, and it helps him focus on reaching what became a difficult end to his career at Acme Paper Box due to his troubling relationship with his highly emotional brother-in-law, Lee Bernstein. So Stanley quits Acme, and he begins selling yellow pages for the R.R. Donnelly Company in Chicago. And then, yes, the family moves to Northbrook in 1955, and Stanley begins a new job selling wholesale beauty supplies for his uncles, Abe and Joe Bailey, who had formed a company in Chicago called Bailey's Beauty Supplies. And now, at the conclusion of this transition, you will be able to follow the family, the Silverfields, in their Northbrook years, because what comes next is called The Silverfields of Northbrook, three plays that will follow Stanley and his family 
from soldier to civilian transition to five years from 1955 to 1960 of what we considered idyllic suburban adventures. And the best years of our lives together, whether we were the Silverfields or the Seavers. And now, as I thank you so much for following the Silver King's War, I hope that you will listen to the Silverfields of Northbrook coming soon. And you are listening to the Silver King's War.